How many of you would agree with this statement, just kind of right off the bat, show of hands, as a fish was made for water, so human beings were made for love. Does that kind of ring true? I mean, if you, you take a fish out of water, you know it's not going to thrive. You take a human being out of the context of love, out of a loving relationship, out of a loving family, it's not going to thrive. He's not going to thrive. She's not going to thrive. If you've ever been fishing and you pull the fish up onto the shore, onto the boat, you know what it does. It just kind of flops around. It looks terrified. It's certainly awkward because the fish wasn't meant to exist on land. It can't walk, can't really breathe outside of water, wasn't meant to, to eat outside of water. The water's the habitat for the fish. And so as soon as that fish is pulled from where it's supposed to exist and thrive, it begins to die. So if you, if you care about the fish, if you're, if you're fishing not for food, but you're fishing for sport, and you really do care about the fish, what do you do? Right after you have appropriately taken the fish and in all humility held it closer to the camera than you are because it's all about the fish. Okay, After you've taken the picture of the fish, what do you do if you care about the fish? You throw it back. You put it back in the water. And then immediately... Maybe within seconds, certainly within a minute, the fish just returns to total health. It's like introducing the fish or reintroducing the fish to the water means that the fish experiences almost instant healing. And this is where the analogy breaks down just a little bit. Because when you take the fish and you throw it back in the water, you know that that fish grew up in that appropriate environment. But when you take a human being who wasn't raised in love or was love-deprived, or the environment of their love was maybe twisted and poisoned, and then all of a sudden you introduce them to pure, perfect love, that perfect love will heal them, but it's not in an instant. We have to grow into the love that we've received. Gene and I, we've been going through this foster training, as some of you know, and man, there's so much involved. They don't just take a kid from the state and give it to just anybody. And so it's... A lot of training, a lot of certifications. We'll be ready in about three months, I think, something like that. We've been doing this training, and I was reminded the other night of just how much we take for granted, those of us who've grown up in relatively healthy homes. And I don't want to assume this is the case for everybody, because I know it's not. But I know for a great many of us, we grew up with an advantage of being loved, being loved by our parents, being loved by, by our siblings for the most part. You know, being loved by extended family. And, and sometimes we just take that for granted until we're pulled out of that environment, until we're jerked out of the water and thrown up on the shore. And then we have these moments or these seasons where we recognize, I didn't know how important all that was until it went missing for a season. Or when you're close to somebody who has had that missing from their life, all of a sudden you begin to realize how important that love was to you, like a fish didn't didn't really embrace or understand the importance of the water until they were sort of taken out of it. For many of us, this is the kind of way in which we were raised. Okay, I'm just going to read you a little excerpt from a book that I've been reading, The Connected Child, which, by the way, was written by a lady that I met years and years ago. I knew her when I was a kid, and it just a small world. Dr. Dr. Karen Purvis. Here's what she writes. Hopefully, this is the experience of most of us. When June was ready to become pregnant, she adjusted her lifestyle to include plenty of nutritious foods, exercise, and sleep, and she eliminated alcohol, tobacco, and drugs. 
Soon, she and her husband were anticipating their first child. The birth itself went smoothly. June eagerly embraced her newborn, snuggling him in her arms, gazing down in wonder. The baby boy, Adam, looked up at her, heard the soft sounds of June's beating heart, and felt her loving embrace. He gurgled in wonder at the unfolding colors, textures, and noises of the world around him. When he cried from hunger, he was fed and gently burped. When he got tired and fussy, an adult would soon pick him up and rock him. As he grew, Adam was treated tenderly and respectfully. His parents cuddled him, guided him, played with him, and when necessary, disciplined him, always prioritizing his needs and safety. Adam has received a great start in life. Before birth, he was incubated in a healthy womb and later emerged into a secure, loving home where he would be tended by competent caretakers. Not all children are so lucky. Then Karen goes on with her fellow authors and mentions some unlucky cases like the case of Donnie. Little Donnie is the baby that lives in or resides in this crib that's furthest from the entrance to the nursery of this orphanage in another country. Little Donnie lies there in his soiled diapers for hours at a time, underfed, never touched, except at feeding time once a day. Donnie spends his life laying on his back, looking at the ceiling and the blank sterile walls because no one will move him. And he's laid in that position so frequently that the back of his head has begun to flatten. And that actually happens. We had some friends when I was pastoring in South Texas that they would go out to, they go out to Jamaica about two weeks out of every summer. And they would go to this orphanage of crack babies. And they would hold these babies and they would cry and cry, and they would just hold them. And Barbara, one of the people who would go, said she would feel on the back of their heads where it had begun to flatten because that's all the babies did all day long was just lie there in their soft little skulls beginning to sink into the mattress upon which they'd been placed. When a person has grown up in a love-deprived environment, they don't thrive. And to the degree that your environment was deprived of love or to the degree that that love was tainted, twisted, spoiled, or poisoned, you have things that you need to grow out of. And the reality is all of us who are here did not have perfect upbringings. Some of us had better than others. It's true. Some of us grew up in Christian homes, intact homes, and mom and dad just loved the fire out of us, and that was wonderful. But some of us, we didn't have that experience necessarily. But none of us had a pristine, pure upbringing. It's not just these certain kids that need to grow into love. All of us, the Bible teaches, we need to grow up into love. Even my kids, and I love my kids, and Gene and I, I think we've poured into our kids as best we can. But they still have to grow up into love. Um, my son, just so that he's 21 years old, uh, we have this practice as a household that whenever one of the students goes off to school, we, we only have two, two kids. And, but when Nathan went off to school, we wrote him letters of encouragement, something that he could open his first day of school. We love you. We believe in you. We're praying for you, that kind of thing. And so now we're doing that with Shelby. And Nathan wrote a letter, and it went like this. Dear Shelby, words cannot express how I'm feeling right now. So I'll leave it at that. Love, Nathan. And, and Gene and I were thinking, yeah, you got, you got some more growing to do. And, and I think we did a pretty good job because not only do we love our son, 
We also had an agenda to basically minimize the amount of money we'd have to spend on therapists later on to heal for mom and dad and all of our deficiencies, okay? But the reality is, even those of us who would self-identify as healthy people, we need to continue to grow in love. This is largely what the Apostle Paul is shooting at when he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when, when I became a man... I put childish ways behind me. We all need to grow up in love, in the love that we've received. Now, in order to better understand what Paul is driving at and the implications of all of this, let's go ahead and read this in its appropriate context, which is the great love chapter of the Bible. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 through the end of chapter 13. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. See, the importance of love is oftentimes seen in love's absence. And then Paul starts talking about love in a very direct way, and he essentially personifies love, this agape love, this perfect love, this pure love, what what some translations identify as charity, so as to set this love apart from other loves, because this agape love, this love of God, is set apart from the other loves. So Paul personifies it, which is entirely appropriate, since agape love is a person. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And God bless the reading of his word, you may be seated. Now, we've got a couple of questions that we're going to hopefully answer today and, and next week. Just warning you, we're going to spend a couple of weeks on just growing in love, and then we're done with this series on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The first question that we want to answer today is, why do I need to grow in this love? And the second question that we're going to begin to answer is, and how do I do this? How do I grow in love? But first things first, why do we need to grow in love? Why do we need to grow up in this? Well, the answer is really pretty simple because... We know that love is the most excellent way, and yet for some reason, even though we recognize that this this is the most excellent way, we're not living in the way. We know it's the most excellent way, and yet for some reason, we're not taking the way. There's something broken inside of us. 
Now, the Apostle Paul starts out, verse 4, talking about how it is that we relate to others. Love is patient, love is kind. We actually spent three weeks on those six words. Love is patient, love is kind. Because that's how we relate to others, that's how the kingdom advances. It's like a seed that goes into the ground and it springs up and becomes a tree and all the birds of the air come and make their nests in it. It's the, the seed of kindness goes out and then there's patience and you wait and that's how we relate to people. That's how the kingdom advances. That's the way it works. But for some reason, being patient and being kind don't come real naturally to us. We can't just say, be patient, be kind, and then immediately, oh, okay, I'll be patient and I'll be kind. There's something messed up inside of us. And so Paul moves on and he starts talking not just about how we relate to others in patience and kindness. He starts talking about how we relate to ourselves, what's going on inside of us internally in terms of our attitudes. Love does not envy, the Bible says. It does not boast. It is not proud. It, 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 it is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And the implication of all of this is that your relationship with others and my relationship with others is connected to my relationship with myself. I can't relate appropriately to other people if my relationship with me is not how it needs to be. Let let me go at it like this. And I'll just speak in first person so you don't feel like you're being picked on or anything. Why would I envy Well, whenever I envy, here's what's going on. Whenever I envy, I'm seeing that you have something more than me or other than me, and and that is something more than you deserve because I deserve that. Why do I think that I deserve what you have that's more than me? Because I'm the king of the kingdom of me. I'm the king. Why should the subjects in the kingdom of me have more than me? That doesn't make sense. But why would I boast? It's a similar reason. I will boast in me having more than you or something other than you because I think that that shows how much better I am than you are because... That fits. I'm the king of the kingdom of me. Why do I boast? Why would I look down my nose at other people? Well, that's entirely appropriate because I'm the king. I'm the highest person in the kingdom of me. I'm the one that's enthroned. Of course I look down on other people because everyone else is the subject and I'm the king. Why is it that I would ever be rude? Well, because everybody else exists for me in the kingdom of me. Why would I care about your feelings? You exist for me. You should be happy to be serving me because this is the kingdom of me. I'm the king. Why am I so easily angered? Why would I keep a record of wrongs? Well, because if you wrong me, it's the worst wrong that could ever be done because I'm the highest. If you wrong me, I'm going to hold that against you. I'm going to keep a record of that. You need to make that right because I'm the highest in the land. I'm the king of the kingdom of me. Why would I delight in evil? Well, because the law doesn't apply to me. When I'm the king of the kingdom of me, I'm the law. I'm the one who makes the rules. Everything doesn't apply to me. It applies to you. It doesn't apply to me because I'm the king of the kingdom of me. Of course, I live for self. Of course, I'm seeking my own because I'm the king of the kingdom of me. If I relate wrongly to me, I'm going to relate wrongly to you. And so there's something inside of me and there's something inside of you that is sort of twisted strangely against this most excellent way. There's something inside of you and inside of me that's sort of strangely leaning in the wrong direction when it comes to giving to others what it is that we demand of others. And I say something is strangely off inside of us because 
we were created by love, for love, and we know that we ought to be giving to others what it is that we're demanding from others, and yet nonetheless, we have a hard time, while we acknowledge that love is the most excellent way, we have a hard time in actually taking the way. Something is broken inside of us. And so we can't just come to, hey, love does this or love is this way, and then we just, oh, I'm just going to immediately apply this as if all I've been missing is information, but I'm not fundamentally broken. No, something needs to be fixed or addressed or grown out of or grown into inside of me. I got a call earlier this week from a young lady that I, that I met years ago. I hadn't seen her in at least three or four years, it seems. And uh, she gave me a call saying, I need to talk to a pastor because I, I want to know how to forgive. And I knew immediately the context or the situation that she was talking about without her explaining anything to me because I know these other parties that are involved. So she called me and said, I want to meet together. Is this, does, is this on? All right. I, I, I want to I meet together with you and uh, I want you to tell me how I can forgive these people. And I let her know, look, I want to help you to stop keeping a record of wrongs, but I'm not interested in taking sides. That's just not what I do. But if you want to learn how to stop keeping a record of wrongs, I'll help you with that. And she said, okay, okay. And so we were going to meet in an hour. I rearranged my schedule. We're going to meet at this restaurant at 11 o'clock. Let's meet. Let's talk. Hadn't seen her in, in years. And, uh, and sure enough, as I'm going to the restaurant, I'm thinking, I don't know that she really wants to forgive, because I, I, I knew she'd talked to a couple of other people, and was like, are you sure you're really wanting? Yeah, I want to forget. She didn't show up, didn't keep the appointment, and part of me was just thinking, I don't think that I can help someone forgive somebody else by giving them a list of five things to do, or ten things to do, or twenty things to do, as if all we're missing in this whole forgiveness equation is a list, or some knowledge. No, we need something more substantial. We need healing because here's the truth about you and the truth about me. Apart from the love of God that changes our lives, the truth about you and the truth about me is, well, we're sort of, we're sort of, well, we're envious, boastful, prideful, rude, self-absorbed, self-seeking, easily angered, touchy, grudge-holding sorts of people. And the problem is we feel like we have a right oftentimes. I feel like I have a right to my envy and my boasting and my pride and my rudeness and my self-interest. And I feel like I have a right sometimes to being a little touchy and to holding a grudge. I delight in those evils. There's something broken inside of you and me that a list isn't going to fix. Paul isn't just giving us a list, say, hey, do this and everything's going to be well. He's showing us a person. He's showing us who love is. And when we see who love is, we recognize, I've got some ground to make up. There's a little bit of distance that needs to be dealt with. And it only gets a little bit more, more pronounced the gap, I guess, when you get to verse 7, because there it gets really challenging when Paul gets to all the pantas. That's the Greek word for all. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, 
always perseveres. It's panta, always, or all things. Some translations that you read will be something like love believes all things. It, you know, it, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's the pantas. It's really challenging. So let's get into this. You'll love it. Love always protects. Love bears all things. You know what that means? That means that when you love somebody, you're going to forgive and forgive and forgive. You're going to cover, not in a bad way, but you're going to protect. You're going to atone, so to speak. You're going to bear with them. Even when there is this, you know, constant annoyingness, even when there's this falling short of your expectations, even when there's a hurt to your life, you're still going to bear with them. Love always does that when you love somebody. I got a good example of this when we were doing training like Thursday night. I learned something kind of interesting. I always knew that if a, a mother was pregnant and she gave birth to a child, if she was on drugs, there was going to be implications for the child. A lot of times these children will cry and cry and cry for hours at a time. But I never knew that a, a person who deals with children all the time can really tell the difference between a mother that was on this drug or that drug. And apparently the worst is methamphetamines. If you're on meth as a pregnant woman, your child will come out and will scream the most horrific scream that you can imagine for hours at a time. In fact, the scream is, is so offensive that you just want to put the child down, go in another room or maybe go you know, outside or drive to another state. It's just really bad. And so these adoptive parents will have to hold these meth babies as they're screaming for up to five hours in the most shrill, shrieking noise that you could possibly imagine, but you bear with it. Love always does that. Love always bears all things, always protects, no matter what. It reminds me of this, the story of uh, Stumpy and Martha. Martha was this wife that always said no to her husband, and he just got sick of it. And so they would go to the, the county fair, and he would say, I want to ride the airplane ride. And she says, no, Stumpy, no, I know you want to ride that, but $10 is $10. One day, years later, they were at the state fair again. He was 77 years old. And he says, Martha, I want to take that there airplane ride. And she says, no, Stumpy, no. I know you want to go, but $10 is $10. And so she's shouting at him. And the guy who's running the airplane ride, the pilot, overhears the conversation and says, I'll take you both up for free. But if either of you make a sound, it's $10. So they agree, both get on the plane. And the pilot does everything he can to get them to scream, shout, say a word, anything. And so he twists and turns and rolls and dives and doesn't hear anything. Goes through the whole routine again. Twists and turns and rolls and dives. They don't, he doesn't hear anything. Lands the plane, turns to Stumpy and says, I did everything I possibly could to get y'all to make a sound. And Stumpy says, well, I almost said something. I almost told you, turn the plane upright when I saw Martha falling out. But $10 is $10. Love bears all things. Love protects, even when you're not necessarily feeling it. And some of you know this. I, I tell you what, I, I, I was having a great conversation with Jose Ariola before, right over here. Handsome guy in the pink shirt, single. Uh, but I digress. <laughs> Anyways, we were talking before the, so he's about to be a deputy, uh, at, for the sheriff's department down in Austin. I was like, really? And he's telling me about some of the training and some of the experiences. And I have enormous respect for anybody in law enforcement. Because the stuff you put up with, if you're in law enforcement, kudos to you. 
Because these, the people that you're protecting oftentimes are the ones that are giving you the hardest time. The, the insults, the taunts, the disrespect, and then you press in to serve and to serve and to serve. I don't know how people in law enforcement do that. But love always protects. Love bears all things. We don't typically think of our law enforcement officers as loving people. But I tell you what, when it comes to always protecting and bearing all things, some of the most loving people you're ever going to meet are people in law enforcement. And we ought to give them thanks for what it is that they do. Appreciate them so much. Love always protects. Love always trusts or love Believes all things is how the Bible puts it. Other translations will put it. What does that mean, to always trust or believe all things? Well, the word that's used there is the word that's commonly translated as faith. What does this mean? It means to put your weight down. It means to to commit. If you're trusting and trusting completely, it's like you sit in the chair and you put your weight on it. You're absolutely thoroughly engaged. If you love someone, you stay engaged. You put your weight down no matter the cost, no matter what comes, no matter the risk. You do that when there's love. Love always hopes or hopes all things. You know where your hope is? Your hope is where your heart ultimately delights. Your hope is the bottom line, okay? It's, it's where everything ultimately rests. I don't know why Ezekiel Elliott is holding out. I want to know. What's your hope? I don't know why people play and get into a car wreck, you know, virtually every play in every game, there's a reason. Is there hope in the money? Is the hope fame? Is it fortune? Is it power? Is the hope of just the thrill of victory and winning a Super Bowl? I don't know, but people do what they do for a particular hope. There's an end. There's a bottom line. So when the psalmist says this over in Psalm chapter 39, verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I love you for you. My hope is in you. I'm not loving you for what it is that you're going to bring. You're not a means to an end. You're the end in and of itself. And so I'm going to love you even if I get nothing else from you except you. Because you, God, are the bottom line. Not what you will bring me because you're not my butler. If you just give me you, that's all I want. That's when you know that you're ready to get married. When you make those vows, you say, I'm going to love you for you. For, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer. In sickness and in health, whatever I get with you, it's okay, because I'm not after what you bring, because you're not a means to an end. You are the one that I want. It's just you. When you love someone, that's how it is. Love always hopes. That doesn't look at the person as a means to an end. It's just the end in and of themselves. And so when love always does these things... Of course, love endures. If love bears all things, is always forgiving. If love always trusts and puts its weight down and is thoroughly committed always. If love always treats the other person not as a means to an end, but an end of himself. Well, then you know love's always going to be there. Love's going to endure. In fact, if love doesn't endure, it's not love. If it, if it is love, it endures. If it is love, love never fails. But if the love fails, then it's not really love. That's love. It, it always endures. It never fails. Now, isn't that wonderful? We say, man, that's great. I love love. Yeah, me too. But where does that leave us? 
Well, here's where it leaves us. It leaves us with room to grow. And so the next question, the natural question is, how do I grow up into this love? Okay, now before we press on this, because I am going to press you, and as we press, it doesn't feel very, very loving. You know, if you're a child and your parent is trying to help you to grow up and they press you, it doesn't feel loving, even though it may be entirely loving, even if they're helping you to grow up into love. So before we start pressing on how to grow up in this love, let's, let's all admit this together. We all acknowledge that love is the most excellent way. You know this is true. And here's how I know that you know this is true. You, you know this and you believe this, not simply because you believe the Bible, because I don't know that all of you do. You, you know this and believe this, not just simply because you take Jesus at his word, although many of you do. For many of you, if the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, it's enough for me, that's great. But even if you don't believe the Bible, even if you don't acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you still believe that love is the most excellent way. I know this. You want to know how I know everyone in this room believes this, everyone in this world believes this? Here's why. Because every single one of you, like every person I've ever met, expects to be and desires to be and demands to be loved in the way that we've just been talking about. You want people to relate to you like this. Have you ever met anybody who says, you know what I really want is to be loved conditionally? I don't want to be loved as, a, as an end in and of myself. What I want is to be loved as a means to an end. I love it when people diminish me and treat me like a slave or a tool or a means to an end. I just, what I want, unconditional love. Who needs that? You're never going to meet somebody who says that. Everybody wants to be loved unconditionally. In fact, it's not just that you want to be loved unconditionally. You know that you need to be loved unconditionally. In fact, if people love you conditionally, you know, that's not even love. That's like a contract. That's, that's a business transaction. That's not even love. You expect people to love you unconditionally. You expect them to love you for you. And if they don't love you for you, and if they love you with all these conditions, you get a little upset and you get hurt. You get wounded. In fact, you'll start judging them. And you don't even feel bad about judging them for loving you in an inappropriate way because you know that the love we've been talking about is the standard. And it's not just that you want to be loved in this way. You know that you need to be loved in this way. In fact, when people are not loved in this way, science shows us that they get damaged. Not just in terms of their worldview. People can actually be damaged physically if they grow up in an environment devoid of love or where love is twisted. People can, people can have underdeveloped or wrongly developed brains if love is not given to them. You, it's not just that you expect this or you want this. You know deep down inside you need this. We all know this. You know love is the most excellent way. You demand it from other people. But here's the problem. While you demand this from other people and I demand this from other people and when other people don't give me this and I get hurt and I judge them and I don't feel bad for judging them because I know that's the standard, at the same time I also recognize... I don't know that I'm really giving to other people what it is that I'm demanding from them. And so we know this is the standard, but we also know that we're kind of falling short. So what do we do? Here's what oftentimes happens. Here's what a lot of people do. A lot of people in our culture, they do this. They'll say, well, okay, here's the standard. I know I'm falling short of it and other people do. 
But that standard that we're talking about, it's not really a standard. It doesn't exist out there. It's just a social construct. We just sort of made it up. There is no teleos, no ultimate goal, no solid moral standard. Come on now. We just made that up. It doesn't exist. And so I'm not going to strive to grow up into love because it's, that ain't real. I've grown up. I used to think about that when I was a child. But now that I'm a, an adult, I put that childish way of love behind me. How foolish. Just a silly, fanciful social construct that doesn't exist. And I, and I understand when people do this because if you've never seen love in action, you do have a tendency to think it doesn't exist. If you've never seen it, you just have a tendency to think it's not real. But deep down inside, you know it's real. I, I, I came across this professor at, at UT, and my daughter's going down to UT, so I'm kind of interested in the professors and stuff. And I came across this professor, Jay Budzizuski. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He's a professor of philosophy and government at UT. Really good author. I've started reading this book, The Line Through the Heart, and it's fantastic. But he tells about this one experience he had in one of his classrooms. A student comes out, up to him after the class, and the student says, You mentioned moral law in the lecture, in your lecture about government. But I learned last semester that there is no moral law. Different societies make up different ideas of what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's fair and unfair. And they're all different. And the professor said, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I'm, I'm sort of lazy and I don't like to grade papers. And I just want to give you an F for the semester without reading any of the work that you ever do. But since you don't believe in some moral standard like fairness that applies to everyone, I'm glad you'll understand. The young man shot back a disturbed glance and very quickly agreed that there is a moral standard to which we should submit. What Paul's been doing here, in so many words, has been giving us the central standard, the standard in which all the other standards hang. It's, it's love. It's at the center of it all. You know, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love will still remain. It's, it's, it's the standard. It's the teleos. It's the perfect end. And the Bible says when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I thought, talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when the, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect disappears. All of the prophecy, all of the knowledge points to to this standard, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect disappears. This is the solid thing. And when I see people doing this, it just creeps me out, rubs me wrong. Here's what happens. Instead of saying, here's this wonderful standard of love, unconditional love, which we all love and we think is fantastic, and people will come to this standard and they say, you know, let's just get rid of the standard. That's like saying, when the imperfect comes, let's get rid of the perfect. That is the narcissism of a child who comes to the parent that's instructing them to grow up into perfection and wanting to murder the parent because the parent's just too challenging to the child. That is childishness at its worst. 
aren't you so glad that we live in a culture where we're not being led culturally, politically by childish narcissists? Praise God. I'm just kidding. I digress. That was political. I'm sorry. I can't help it. When the perfect comes, the imperfect disappears. You recognize who the adult is and you recognize who the child is and who needs to change and what needs to remain. Now, this presses us ahead to the the final question. And then the big final question is, okay, how do I grow up into this love? I recognize this is the most perfect way, the most excellent way, but I'm not there. How do I grow up into this love? Because I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm not going to dismiss it. I know this is the way. I demand this from other people. I want to give it to other people. How do I grow up into this love? We're going to talk about this next week. But for now, let me give you at least something to hang on to. How do I grow up into this love? How does a child grow up? Here's how a child grows up. The child needs a parent. A child needs a parent who will give them the love that they can receive and grow into. Now, some of you are thinking, I think I'm too old to be reparented. No, you're not. I'm too old for another parent. No, you're not. You're not too old for God. Trust me. And you are not too old to learn this old, old story or be reminded of it, of how your heavenly father, who loves you with a perfect love, sent his only begotten son, who came to protect you, who came to bear all things by taking your sin and mine and dealing with it on the cross in his broken body and shed blood. You're not too old to be reminded of this very simple truth that love always trusts, that Jesus Christ came and he trusted his Father to the point of death, even death on the cross, because even when things hurt, even when things may not have made sense at any given moment, Jesus trusted in God and in God alone. You're not too old to be reminded of the truth that that while our hope ought to be in the Lord, his hope is in you because you are God's bottom line. The reason Jesus Christ came was for you. The Bible tells us that he endured the, 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 the pain of the cross, scorning, scorning its shame because of the joy set before him. You know who the joy was that was set before him? It was you. You're the one he came for. You are the treasure that he gave everything up for. I don't know why Ezekiel Elliott's holding out. I don't know why certain people do what they do. It doesn't really seem to make sense to me. But here's what I know about God. I know why God did what he did. It was for you. Because love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Love endures it always endures love never fails his love that he's expressed for you in perfection endures to this day you need this you cannot live without this and there is no other source not your mom not your dad god you need this now for some of you i know that you're a little reluctant to receive it i i get that because it takes a while for things to grow in. It takes a while for it to soak in, for you to acknowledge it and receive it. But just because God has given you his perfect love 
doesn't mean that you don't need to receive it. Just because the perfect has come in the Son, Jesus Christ, doesn't mean that you don't need to let him in. You do. But for some of you, I just want to give you this permission. If you can't let him in now, let him in slowly. But let him in. Because this is the most excellent way. And when you start walking in the most excellent way, here's what happens. You look back on the way that you've taken in the past and you think, all the wasted time. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for loving us the way that you do. We thank you, Lord, that you are not the cosmic hypocrite, that what you demand from us, you actually demand from yourself. And while we do not give to you what it is that you are so richly deserving of, you still give us what it is that we need, but we do not deserve in the least. Why do you love us? I guess it's because you are love. You can't help yourself. You are perfect, pure, agape. You are the love that gives and that gives and that gives. You are the love that we need. You're the love that heals. Thank you for being who we need. Our hope should be in you. And yet there's something inside of us that is broken, that rejects the most excellent way. And I just pray, Lord, that if we're not ready to receive you all at once, that in some way we'll just start letting you in and start letting you in until the doors open wide. Because you and you alone or what we need. Father, if there are any here this morning that do not yet know you as their heavenly Father, the lover of their souls, who do not yet know Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of love, I pray, Lord, that if they're ready to open their hearts and let you in, that they would just simply say this to you, God, I know I've sinned. I know I'm... It's not just that I've done wrong. I've done wrong because I'm broken. It's not just that I've envied or boasted or been proud or rude or self-seeking or touchy or grudge-holding. It's that I've actually embraced those things. It's not just that I did the things that were wrong. I did the things that were wrong knowing them to be wrong, and I felt justified in all of it. It's not just that I've sinned. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. But I need your love. And so, God, forgive me for what I've done. But I acknowledge that I'm broken, and I acknowledge that you're my healer. And so, Lord, I'm turning for myself and the kingdom of me, and I'm trusting in Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. God, I'm trusting in in you as the lover of my soul. Thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you for coming in to my life. And I just want to spend the rest of my days growing up into the love that you have so freely given to me. In Christ's name, amen. Listen, if you prayed that, I want to encourage you in that relationship. And as I explained, it's not like instant change happens like this, not, not typically. But I want to encourage you in this growth, in this relationship, and in this love. I'll be at the back to talk with you and pray with you. I'll be available after the service. You can come talk to me. But you allow the Holy Spirit to continue to deal with you as we continue in worship here this morning. Let's go ahead and stand.